Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. It's easier, the woman thinks aloud, to love the people who aren't right in front of you. This program features the work of 2016 writer Allison Stagner. Curator Karen Finneyfrock spoke with her in an interview. You said your poems share one thematic obsession, the instability of love in all its forms. Tell me how that theme shows up in the poems. I return again and again to this idea that communication, no matter how much you try to flesh it out, uh, no matter how many clauses you (laughs) shove into your sentences, it's impossible to fully get across an experience. And these poems are very concerned with that emotional barrier that's always going to be between two people. Um, When you're going through life, you're always trying to navigate two worlds, and the first world is this outer world of just being in the world and speaking to one another and being active, an active participant in what's going on around you. And the other world is the interior world, and you're constantly being pulled to and from, you know, each of these worlds. And so I think I'm sort of fascinated by that tension between what's going on in the mind and what's going on outside. You've also said your poems are often concerned with violence and danger. What is it that keeps you returning to that theme? Well, I think that violence is that great enigma that our society is facing and has always faced any society. I mean, living in Eastlake in Seattle, I don't feel like I'm living in a particularly violent culture, and yet I certainly see violence in various forms every day, And then in a lot of ways, I'm complicit in those kinds of violence. Um, There's this website where you can go and see, you know, all the slaves that you have just through the products that you consume and um, what you eat and what you what you wear. Um, And I have 21, (laughs) which is surprising. But I think that I'm obsessed with violence, not only because I'm trying to work out how I'm complicit, but also Because I'm a lyrical writer, I'm kind of concerned with sounding at times too trite or sweet. And so I I like to sort of pull the rug out from underneath readers when I can by reminding them of that sort of thread. Tell me about a time, maybe when you were younger, when you first knew that you wanted to be a writer or realized that you were a writer. For me, my interest in poetry started when uh, I have to go all the way back to the beginning My father died when I was very young. He died when I was two. And like any adolescent dealing with difficult things, I think that gave me sort of extra angst (laughs) or extra, I don't know, anxiety in a way, extra sadness. And so when I was a teenager, I would go through his things. And the thing that I would look at the most that belonged to him was this series of notebooks he had written. And in those notebooks were um, poetry. And he wasn't you know, an amazing poet, (laughs) but the things that he was capturing in those notebooks made me feel as though I sort of knew him um, a little bit more. So I 
I was reading his his poetry, and he also wrote criticism of philosophers and poets and other writers. And by reading that criticism, that he was just writing in diary form, it was very informal. And by the these really rough drafts that he was writing, um, that was sort of the impetus for trying to construct him in my brain or trying to construct a sense of his personality. And now I realize, of course, that that's impossible. You can never construct a person that you don't know. But I think that that was my sort of driving reason for getting into poetry in the first place, that I sort of wanted to make that connection. Tell me about your process. When and where do you write? I actually write out loud. I have lost the ability to write by hand, which is sort of depressing. Um, And it also means that I can't write um, at a bus stop or, you know, in Trader Joe's or something like that. And that I'm I'm sort of forced to be alone, um, either walking, not in public, or (laughs) in my room. And essentially what I'll do is, you know, these snippets of images that I've been collecting, hopefully I'll be keeping a list of them scribbled somewhere. Um, And then I actually just start talking. And that's how I write my poems. I write my poems walking with my dog a lot, which is weird, but... I think that the walking helps me pace my poems and helps me syntactically in a way. When you're not writing anything down, you have to keep track of the thought process that goes into the sentence, and you have to be really aware of your sentence sounds and what your tonality sounds like. Um, I emphasize that a lot in my work, using different tones, unexpected tones. Why do people need poems? I think that as people, we are living in this kind of reductive reality where from moment to moment we are only focusing on what is absolutely necessary, what is absolutely immediate and pressing and must be paid attention to. But because of that, the nature of that reality, that means that our our thoughts are sort of always, they're raw, they're, they're unkempt in a way. And I think that in order to try to communicate that interior state to other people, what poetry does, and I think it does this, I'm going to sound very probably narcissistic when I say this, but I think that poetry does this more than any other literary form because the focus of the language, word for word, line by line, punctuation by punctuation mark, is so much more intense than, you know, you can't bring that intensity to writing a novel because you would go completely bonkers. But what you're doing when you're writing a poem And the reason why it becomes sort of sacred is because the language is attempting to sort of clear itself, purify itself, make itself as accurate as possible. And I think that it's the ideal form for me for expressing not only this moment-to-moment interior life, but it's also in doing that and trying to do it as precisely as possible, it's kind of clarifying uh, our just human communication in a way that we certainly don't do in conversation and we oftentimes don't do in something like journalism. It's hard to get that kind of precision, I think. Now we'll hear a selection from Allison's live reading.
This first poem is called Last Zero on Earth. Returning to the empty house, hair picked clean by the journey, this is the moment the woman sees all she missed before. The way the sea is like a dish of milk brought to her door. How inside lamplight illuminates a tidy room. How like a party favor, it's full of swans and yellow irises. How the flowers on the wallpaper call to the bees and beetles on the walls of other houses in other neighborhoods. How around the peaked edge of the roof of fog bell feels for the perfume of these flowers, a place to roll itself. The woman imagines she is standing amid a scattering of paper pollen. She imagines she is standing on a dune that smells like dead letters. One rips free and blows into her hands. She unfolds it. It reads, you can hold me for as long as you need. She holds the letter until the fog bell digs its fingers into the eaves once more. Just as it rattled the abalone shells in her bedroom as a girl, and just as it became once in a dream, the dark horn of a forgotten people, telling her to pull the feathered cape over her nightshirt, to let the horn's note carry her as the sea carries a boat, to war if necessary, under strange trees, she tries to hold the sound inside, make it a human sound, make it the voice of her parents, but it clacks like a gauge. The letter in her hands bursts into a spray of arrows. The arrows dissolve into falling stars, which burn holes into the braided rag rug. It's easier, the woman thinks aloud, to love the people who aren't right in front of you. Here, she is saying to you, impossibly. The woman is touching behind your ear with her purple-blue fingers. Do you feel them? Now she is pressing two white pigeons to your chest. Their heat clings to your shirt. Their cry isn't elegy. What it is has no word. M moving into even weirder territory. Uh, <laughs> Um, this poem is called The City Where Everyone Believed They Were Glass. We saw it only once, from the car, windshield clipping dusk-flying moths, colorless as aged irises. Saw it come roaring up fast, but in saturated stillness, the long, inaudible body of the city, where a young duchess had lived thought she had swallowed as a child a small glass piano and had to move with practiced caution, pushing her flimsy ribcage forwards. And watching the Duchess arrange her skirts so expertly, the citizens began to believe for them too, maybe deep in nests of their bronchi or tucked perilously under their Adam's apples, was a perfume dropper with a remarkable twisted point or a carousel unicorn ornament in a gold leaf saddle. But every kingdom is lost to the forest eventually. And as the centuries passed, their doctrines grew unrefined. They came to fear their entire legs, backs, even their asses might be glass. And they stuffed their clothes with straw 
and they developed the custom of always sitting on their hands, and they laid down very gently beside each other when it was absolutely necessary. Passing through, we saw no glass in the windows of their homes, as if nobody could stand the reminder. The unpained panels of wood seemed soft as doeskin dresses, and the inhabitants looked, standing at these holes, as if they could feel their bones, all the bones in the city, throbbing in front of the lowering moon. And they watched night pull along its hem, taking itself away planet by planet, Bye-bye. I shut my eyes and slept. Waking, I found we had parked in another city, a place where crows bring baubles to the luckiest little girls, faded pieces of foam, opals white as shark's teeth. The dawn fog had burned off, and we sweated in our down jackets. In a storefront window, a chef was cutting thick slices of pineapple mounding them in a bowl. The knife stuck in the flushing yellow flesh was pride-free. I felt it then, behind my cheek, the first wincing, breakable sliver. We'll like it here, you said. We'll love it. Just one more. This one is kind of a doozy. Um, it's, it's a little long. But hang on, hang on to the syntax, and we'll all get out of it just fine. Um, so this one is called The Thing That Brought the Shadow Here, which is also the title of my manuscript. You've a pocket, gray-green, pressed flat as funnel fronds in a wax paper book. And reaching into it, you retrieve your antique tin matchbox, the one with a sleeping wren decorating the much-rubbed metal, its lean-winged, brown-door-color body painted with a brush of just eight strands of mink hair. And here on the furling edge of the beach face, which is always in a state of defense or recovery from itself, your wet legs crush sharp-scented matter, red flakes of seaweed rot bandied by flies, the bloodworms working down in tight-nerved calm, away from the blank sailcloth of the sky writhing texture into sand as porous as the skin on your nose, which, if I turn my head over its right shoulder, is magnified by droplets of spray, small reservoirs of the microscopic and of the ordinary. And although it glints there in fleck after fleck is spoiled human surface, that human beautiful, I know, how closed your face Closed as the wrens, its sharp beak swung down to see beneath itself. Closed now to me, this you that brought me your slim body in the waist-high beach grass, but also your shadow. This you with no wry longing now to drag the striker along the box, to smoke until the throat Feels a charred ring hard as overcooked bread, a black circuit where one story pauses breathless against another, where speech can't give a place to feeling yet. On St. Stephen's Day, the island boys would scrub their foreheads in burnt cork, then chase a wren 
until it died from exhaustion, and tying it to the top of a holly bush would parade it door to door in exchange for a donation for the dance hall, past the well, past the graveyard with its mottled wooden crosses and crown of fog. The farthings in the eldest boy's hat accruing and growing heavier until it was difficult to lift. One gets tired of carrying one's bayonet. One tires. Like a blade on the strands of my hair, I test each moment for its possibilities. As did the mink years ago, when his fur was taken for the brush, who shook mechanically as a willow full of birds shakes in the wind, as the hutch's lock was jimmied open, matchbox painter coming to collect his due, the image of painter piercing its way into the mink's pupil, reversed, unrighted as image is, unstoppable as image is. And I know no matter how much sand gets in my eye, I will not make a pearl of it. The little hurts we caused each other in simply trying to live alongside. And in the walled air between us, all our thoughts go splitting now, like pods, generating privately. No one more dismayed than us at how quickly we came to believe in something else. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2016 curator of this program is Karen Finneyfrock. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Mo Preventure, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.